0: I understand, but today we're going to go on a whirlwind tour of not what my opinion says about sacrifice, but what scripture says for Christians, and it's rooted in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see that Jesus is for sacrifice. We're continuing our series of what Jesus is for. Jesus is for sacrifice, just not the kind of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament, the the bulls, the goats, the sheep, the doves, the birds, all that. But instead, he's for a new kind of sacrifice, a self-sacrifice, the kind that comes through self-denial, the kind that comes through self-discipline. And I propose a radical idea that Jesus is even for being self-indulgent, just not in the way maybe that you might think of self-indulgence. So hold on to your seats. Let's dive in for finding out how Jesus is for sacrifice today. We're going to turn to Romans. We're going to just begin right with scripture. We're going to start in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1. Now, right from the outset, Paul opens this uh, phrase, this passage, with a therefore. And my pastor growing up used to always say, whenever we see a therefore from Paul, we have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore therefore? And it helps us remind, it helps remind us that this is a signpost for Paul. Now, what Paul does when he uses a therefore is that he uh, is referencing in this next section something that he wrote previously. And sometimes you can go back a verse, maybe, maybe two verses, and you can see exactly what context Paul is putting this next phrase in or this next set of verses. Unfortunately for you today, uh, Romans chapter 12 is a culmination of 11 other chapters. And Paul's therefore refers back to chapters 1 through 11. So if you have a mind, you need to go back and read the first 11 chapters. We can't do it today. But go back, read the first 11 chapters, and you'll see that God is, uh, Paul sums up God's redemptive plan for humanity. That God had a plan from the beginning that everything that God has done to this point was all by the mercies of God. It was all intended for mankind's salvation. And so that's what we're looking at in the therefore. There needs to be an appropriate response, Paul thinks. So using this word therefore, we're transitioning now to what is this response to this, this revelation that God intended from the beginning for mankind to be saved from sin, and to do so he sent his son Jesus into the world to die for the sins of mankind, to be that sacrifice so that we could have new life. What does that look like? And Paul is going to give us a picture of that. We're going to explore that today. Now, we got to remember that Jesus Christ was sacrificed on the cross, so he's the culmination of everything in the Old Testament scripture says about sacrifice. He was the perfect, sinless, blemishless lamb that was sacrificed for mankind's sins. He completed the Old Covenant works, the Old Covenant promises, and that sacrificial system in the New Testament, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament is now over. Christ has a new plan, a new covenant for us. No longer do we have to sacrifice sheep and goats, which is a great because if you remember in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. Rome came in, sacked the city. Uh, the city was in rebellion. Rome came in and said, nope, we're going to take you out. And so Rome, Jerusalem destroyed by Rome and the temple was raised and therein, there was no more worship in the temple. <clears throat> God no longer dwells there though. God doesn't dwell in temples anymore. No physical buildings. and Instead, he indwells us. We're now a living temple for God to dwell. And so Paul calls for a living sacrifice to be made. So Jesus is for sacrifice, just a different kind of sacrifice. So bringing us to our first point today, and he says this, that sacrifice is not the, the murder, the killing of animals for for sacrifice anymore. Now we are called to a new kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that's dying to self through self-denial. Now, this flies in the face of everything that humanity tells us right now, and has told us, if you've ever studied history, you'll see that this is true, but humanity's natural tendency is to do things that it wants to do. Not the things of God, but it, of course, I'm not saying that everything in the world is evil, but it wants to dwell and do the worldly things. Self-denial, on the other hand, is a willingness to set aside those things, to deny oneself's possessions or status, and to deny oneself those things that God finds abhorrent, and instead focus on those things that God finds pleasing. And this is to, for a purpose, it's to grow us in holiness and to grow our commitment to God. It's not just because God likes to make arbitrary rules, but it's for our health and our well-being. Now, this practice was also commended by Jesus. And you see the New Testament apostles and the early church fathers practice this all over the place in their writings. <clears throat> and sacrifice through self-denial, it underlies the very principles of what it means to be a Christian. It underlies the Christian fellowship within the church. And it underlies everything that our lives should be about. There's some things that we just have to be in self-denial for. We can't practice the things of the old and call ourselves a new creation. So let's explore this. Let's see what Scripture says. So in Luke chapter 1, if you remember, this is the story where the angel appeared before Zechariah the priest and was telling him that he's going to have a son. He and his wife were going to have a son, and it was going to be what we would now call him as John the Baptist. And so the angel says for he John the Baptist will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb. And then in chapter 7 we see that yes indeed John the Baptist had come eating no bread and drinking no wine as you say. Now this is where the world inserts. What do they think of John the Baptist? John the Baptist didn't do these things. He was he, he practiced self-denial the way the angel said and he the world thought he was so crazy, so different that they called they said that he had a demon. Now, in this day and age, we don't think of people as being demon possessed, uh, especially in our Western culture. Definitely not uh, something that we would say. But instead, we use other terms for Christians that practice these things: uh, misogyny, bigoted. You know, you name, you name it. Well, we call, we get called all sorts of names. So, so even today, two thousand years later, the world still would, if we transported back then, they would have said we're demon possessed. Now, the denial that John practices is reminiscent of the Nazarite vow, if you remember uh, from number 6, and, uh, or the story of um, Samson and Judges. He took a Nazarite vow, and he was going to deny himself certain things, and, so, and he didn't cut his hair, so Samson had all the strength and stuff and came from God. Daniel himself a- enacted a similar uh, form of abstinence. You see this in, in Daniel 1 and Daniel 10, where he didn't eat certain kinds of food in the king's court because he wanted to honor God. Now, some of you might say, okay, wait, wait, wait. That goes back to the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament covenant. Those are the rules that they had. And I agree with you. I'm not asking you to take a Nazarite vow today. Um, You don't have to do that. So congratulations. You're set free from that. We're operating under the New Covenant. And the New Covenant still asks us to be in self-denial for certain things, just like the Old Covenant did, but in a different way. And so Matthew... 16 starts to record, what did Jesus say about being in, practicing self-denial, having sacrifice through self-denial? And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now Jesus, he himself was the culmination of the Old Testament. So you might say, well, his ministry still falls under the Old Covenant scriptures. And so Jesus is talking again about the Old Covenant. And I would say, wait a minute though, look closer at this verse. If anyone would come after me, Jesus is pointing forward here to a time that is after his sacrifice, after his death on the cross and resurrection and saying, if you want to come after, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's an idea here that is carried forward from the old Testament to the new Testament. It is changed by Jesus. Peter records it this way. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul there's things that we have to abstain from, things that we have to be practicing self-denial about. Philippians 3 says, Paul told the Philippians, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is a man who, if you read the first 11 chapters of Romans, he was the, the Jew of Jew. He was a Pharisee through and through. He was grounded in Scripture. He knew everything about Scripture. And yet, on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden, his life changed Jesus visited him, his old life was dead now, he had a new life in Christ, and Paul didn't look back. He said, whatever gain I had over here, it's a loss that I count as great for the sake of Christ. So the passions of the flesh that we sacrifice over here, that wage war against our soul, we're happy to put on over here. We're happy to give that up. How far do we go? Well, Paul answered this in Acts 21. Paul says, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was willing to take his views, his belief in the gospel, all the way to the end of his life and to die in service of God. The apostles likewise sacrificed their lives for the sake of the gospel. Even the earliest church fathers often were martyrs. Now, I suspect many of you here, and this is probably, whew, we're all thinking, we're not gonna be called to martyrdom. Many of you here sitting in this church today, probably not gonna be called to be martyrs. Pastor Bill loves to say, well, if I can live a martyr's death, that'd be great. And if I can die a martyr's death, because then he's, he's guaranteed the highest, if then he doesn't, what does he say? He says, you don't, then I won't be cleaning your toilets in heaven. <laughs> right, he'll have a higher seat than that. There's certain things that we we give up. My hope and my prayer for myself is if I'm not dying a martyr's death is that the last words on my lips, the last breath that I utter is in glory to God, that I'm giving him praise and I'm giving him honor. I suspect we're not going to be called to be martyrs, but a much more mundane and probably even harder task is ahead of us. A harder sacrifice is asked for us. Sometimes we need to sacrifice our addictions, some of us. Right? We gotta give up those things that have clung to our lives and have taken over. Men, you gotta stop looking at porn. It wages war on our souls. The passions of the flesh, it wage war on our soul. It is destructive. You gotta watch how much you drink. Maybe you gotta quit smoking. Don't eat so much. Put down your phone. We have to give up those things. We sacrifice those things that take us away from God so that we can be closer to God. Now, the trick with that, though, is if we sacrifice one thing and we pick up something else, then that's not very constructive. But, okay, so you, you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, I don't have an addiction. I'm good. I'm thankful, thankfully, I'm, I'm doing good there. But I hoard my money. I earned it. It's mine. It belongs to me. I'm going to keep it. You can't have it. Get away. Get away. Right? But you know what? God calls us to be generous, sacrificial. We should give to the church, give to charitable organizations, serve in your community, give up your time. Maybe serve in your kids' school and volunteer. You could support a missionary. There's time and money that you could sacrifice. Now, if you've gotten through the first two and you're like, okay, check that box, check that I'm good, I'm good. Right? Sometimes it's our stuff, our possessions our pride, our standing before others. We're comparing ourselves to our neighbors. have got to keep up with the Joneses. Dude, my neighbor, he's got this cool car. It's a Corvette. Super fast. I got to beat him in a car. I need to get a new engine for my car so that I can take him to the track and I can, I can take him. Well, maybe you got to sacrifice that. Maybe you give that up so that you can send your kids to private school, to a Christian school, so they can learn more about God. Maybe it's your parents are in the hospital and they're their hospital bills are mounting up and they're just inundated with debt and they're stressed out and you just need to relieve that burden for them. Or maybe you have a friend that is dealing with an addiction that we talked about earlier that needs help, can't afford to go to rehab on his own and it's, you know what, I'm going to give up the the jet ski at the lake so that he can go to rehab. Or I give him a place to stay when he gets out of rehab so that he can get back on his feet. Lost his house, lost his family, nowhere to go. Now, as parents, I think we understand the idea of giving things up, don't we? Because if any of you have ever had kids, what's the number one thing we sacrifice? Sleep, right? <laughs> we have infants. The first thing we give up is sleep. Some ladies, you're probably thinking, my body. But, you know, we give up. We sacrifice our, our time, our sleep. Christians were called to be in self-denial, not just for ourselves, We don't practice self-denial just for ourselves, just for our own growth, but it's for the sake of others. Philippians, Paul tells the Philippians, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In Romans 15, Paul even goes stronger with it, and he says, we who are strong have an obligation, an obligation, it's not optional, folks, it's an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If friends or family members who give in to temptations, don't join them, right? But don't condemn them either. We have to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. We come alongside, we counsel them, we help them. Romans 14, 21 talks specifically about an idea about, it is not good to eat meat or drink while wine, drink wine, or do anything that, Causes your brother to stumble. So instead of the temptation being with your friends or your family and you succumbing to that, you should not do anything. You should not practice anything that causes your brother to fall into temptation. You sacrifice yourself, you sacrifice your desires, your wants, whatever, so that you don't cause your brother to stumble. 1 Corinthians 8, for therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, if you're a vegan in here, any vegans? Yeah, if you're a vegan, these are the verses you cling to, right? These are like Paul said, right out, right there, it's clear as day. Don't eat meat. I'm being godly. I'm, not, I'm a vegan. Okay, I hate to burst your bubble. But let's, we need a little context here. In Roman days, especially in Corinth, this was a big problem in Corinth. There were temples to the Roman gods and uh, meat would go into the temple for sacrifice. And then when they were done sacrificing it, they would go out the back door with the meat and then take it to the market. So if you were a practicing Christian or a practicing Jew who was trying to be good and not eat meat, sacrificed to idols, you couldn't go to the market with any assurance that you could find meat that was holy, for lack of a better term. Everything had, had, you had run the risk of that it was sacrificed to an idol. So Paul's telling them, look, as Christians, don't eat the meat in the market That way, you don't cause your brother to think that, well, God told me I'm not supposed to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and you're doing it, so I guess it's okay, right? Don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't do it. So you sacrifice. Paul's saying, sacrifice yourself for the sake of your brethren. Now, there's at least 12 more verses that speak on this same issue, this self-denial for the sake of others. So this is a staggering amount in the New Testament, so it's gotta be important. Christ himself was a sacrifice <clears throat> through self-denial. If you remember the story in the garden, I missed that slide, but in the garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, he goes, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away, but not as I will, but as you will be done, your will. Jesus said, I'm laying aside even my own desires for life, and if God, if, if you can take it, that'd be great. I would love to live still, but if not, that's okay. I'm still willing to do your will. Paul teaches the Philippians to even have a mind about self-denial, because he tells us what? To mimic Christ. And these are commands. These aren't just suggestions. If you feel like it, hey, it'd be great if you could be like Christ. No. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the wonderful thing I love about this passage, not just the command to be imitators of God and to walk in love, which is great. It makes me feel good. I want to do that thing. But it's how God believes in. That we're beloved children. He sees us as his beloved children. And so as kids, as we raise up our kids, we teach them right from wrong and we want them to to be imitators of us in all the good ways. Don't do the things that are bad. Don't do what I do, but do what I'm asking you to do. Do these good things. God is saying, look, you're my children and I've modeled for you through Christ Jesus what it looks like. Do it. Do it. Sacrifice the way Jesus did. But how do we do that? And that's a tough one. Because if any of you have ever quit an addiction, you know that quitting cold turkey is, is really hard. I won't say impossible, but next to. Right? Just giving something up out of the blue. Just deciding one day, like I've got a million dollars, I'm just going to give it all away. That's hard to do. How do, I, how do I train myself to maybe care more about the things of God? And that leads us to our second point. It is, it's training. We have to train ourselves. We have to be self-disciplined. We sacrifice not only through self-denial, but through self-discipline. We train ourselves to love the things that God loves. Now, just like in training, there's a certain amount of sacrifice that's needed, right? If you are going to train for an event, you're getting ready to run a race, maybe you're getting a new job and you're training for the job. Um, you've got a project at work and you need to know how to build ex- you know, this widget and you gotta go to the instruction manual you go to someone else that maybe knew something about it and you start practicing you start training yourself so that you can do this thing well being a Christian and training ourselves is no different than that it's no different And just like disciples, just like um, athletes, we have to train ourselves for the purposes of godliness. Now, in, in Corinth at the time when Paul was there, there was a lot of athletic events that were coming through all the time. And so people were traveling back and forth, passing through Corinth, and so they were very familiar with this idea of athleticism and athletic events. And as a result, Paul uses this analogy when he talks to the Corinthians, and he says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it, right? You got to practice and train with a goal in mind. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should be disqualified. So he says, now he says, why? Why do we train ourselves? Well, because when I share the gospel with someone, when I'm being a light of Jesus out in the world, I don't want them to look at me and say, you're a really poor example of what it means to be a Christian. You kind of look hypocritical. You're saying don't do this, but then at the same time, you're doing it. Just like I said earlier with my kids, if I say don't do what I do, but do what I say, kids hate that. I hated that. Why do I have to do that, Mom? Because I said so. Right? Hated that. Hated that excuse. No, there's a good reason why. It keeps you healthy. Right? It keeps you safe. It's a good behavior. It's a good model because the Bible asks us to sacrifice. You got to give reasons. We train ourselves so we learn to avoid the irreverent, right? So no longer aimlessly pursuing worldliness, but we allow others to see Christ in us. First Timothy there we go. First Timothy. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. There's a purpose. Training for training's sake is pointless. We don't just train because I like to train. How many of you go running and like, oh, I love running, right? But I have a goal in mind. I want to achieve a certain milestone, whether it's a time maybe, or maybe I'm training for a race and I want to run a race. I want to win the race. Or I'm riding a bike. There's a goal. I'm trying to get a job. I'm trying to complete this task. You're training for that end goal. You're not training just to train. And so are we. We're training ourselves for godliness. We want to be more like Christ. We want to look more godly for others. We want to be more godly. And how do we do that? Well, Ephesians 4. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now the good news is, is that God, when he looks at us from above as Christians, that he sees our righteousness already. He knows what the end result will look like. And our job is to work with the Holy Spirit and to train ourselves so that we can achieve and take on the appearance that God already sees. And again, there's no arrival in this life There's no arrival or goal. It's not like you can say, oh, I read my scriptures ten times and so I made it. Here we go. Now I can go back to doing whatever I want to do and living however I want to live. No. It's a lifelong pursuit. And Paul certainly didn't rest on his education laurels. In Philippians, he says, not that I have already obtained this or already perfect. Remember, Paul was the Jew of Jews and he said, I'm not perfect. He recognized that. He says, but instead I press on, I make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So if you're like me and you read through scriptures and you think, man, Paul, Peter, these guys were great men. There's no way I'm ever gonna measure up to them. It's okay. You don't have to. We don't have to be just like everybody else. We don't have to be great. We just have to keep moving forward. We don't look back. And Paul says, I just keep straining for the next. Keep moving forward. Keep straining ahead. He didn't see perfection as something to be obtained. Now, before any of you get bent out of shape and start calling me out for adding works to salvation, I'm not saying that there are works to salvation. I'm saying that If you remember, there's a key phrase at the very beginning that we talked about, and it was by the mercies of God. It was by the mercies of God that we've been saved. It's by the mercies of God that we continue to grow in holiness. It's God's Holy Spirit indwelling us. It is him that is empowering us. It's, It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the strength and the courage and the ability to do these things. But that also means that as we mature, as we achieve, and as we attain more maturity as Christians, that it's not us that did it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, which should mean that instead of becoming more prideful and haughty and self-righteous, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it, right? Instead, we should say, thank God. Thank God for the mercies that you've shown to me that you've made me more like your son. It should cause humility to, to infuse us. And Paul recognized this. He pressed on with the Holy Spirit, guiding and acting upon him as children of God, his chosen and holy beloved. This is a holy, righteous God. The God of all creation, the entire universe, calling us holy and beloved. It's a gift he's given to 2 Timothy. God gave us a gift, gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of Power. And love and self-control. These are tools. These are gifts that God has given us. We are removed from fear and we have power now. Power to overcome the things that we struggle with. Paul tells the Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There's that phrase again. We're to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, Titus, training to us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. This is something that is incredibly hard to do. I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly hard in this day and age to do so because the rest of the world is screaming at us, telling us, do whatever you want to do, live the way you want to live, be whatever gender, be whatever job, do whatever you want to do. And Christians are like, no, wait a minute. I'm supposed to look more like Jesus. And that requires some self-control. I can't just go on emotion. The author of Hebrews contrasted it this way. It said, But a solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's a difference, folks, between being a mature Christian and being, I call them baby Christians, right? Or less mature in the faith. Right? Mature Christians understand they have trained themselves to discern good from evil. They've made the mistakes. They've been there. They've done that. And they understand what God's word is saying and they know how to apply it to their lives. So if you're in a, in a position where you're a newer Christian or maybe you are, haven't yet become a Christian, find someone who is a mature Christian so that they can pour into you and help you understand what that means and what that looks like. It's much easier to do with a coach. I've been losing weight. If many of you have commented on it. And I, it's not on my own... Ability and and things like that. I have a health coach. I have someone who knows about health and well-being and how to eat and how to do things correctly pouring into me and helping me navigate what that looks like. Christianity is the same way. We have mature Christians surrounding us. Tap into that. Have them help you navigate what that looks like. Now, how many of you have ever fallen short and made mistakes? Okay. Two hands. I love that, John. That was great. We should, we should, two hands, right? How many of you have read your scriptures, you know what scripture says about something, and still did it anyway? Yeah, me too. I have a good example of that. It's not scripture related. But uh, the other day, uh, Thursday night actually, my wife and I, we just got a new, remember I said I was losing weight, so I'm trying to eat healthier, more vegetables. We got a mandolin, which is a little slicer for vegetables. Now, I've read the instructions. I have seen it on, I've watched Countless Food Network, Top Chef, I, I mean, I'm a pro, I know what this thing does, right? It comes with a food guard and everything, so you can slice your vegetables safely. This dummy decided, oh, I don't need the food guard. I'll just, I just want to see what it does real fast. It just, Is it really that sharp? I, I mean, this, is, this looks pretty cool. Slice, 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 slice. And there went my thumb, right on the tip of my thumb. And I screamed like bloody murder, literally bloody murder, because there's blood everywhere. <laughs> my kids come running over, and they're freaking out. Um, my wife heard me. She was finishing up work in the other room. She comes running in. She's like, are you OK? And I'm like, no, this hurts so bad. Do we need to go to the hospital? I don't think so. Uh so my son, go get a band-aid. He, he kinda turned a little uh, lesser shade of pink, maybe white. He he did not like the sight of blood. And he went running for the band aids, comes back out, here you go, Dad, his hands are shaking, gives me a band-aid and I stick it on instantly, you know. didn't didn't stop the lady, So I'm sitting there putting pressure on it, doing all these things and it's just a nightmare. Now the thing is, the kicker, is that the tool comes with a guard to protect you and I chose not to use it. I knew full well what that guard was for. I'd seen the instructions, I knew what I was supposed to do and yet this dummy decided anyway, I'm just gonna go without the guard, without the protections. The Bible is no different. Folks, the Bible is there. It's our guard, our protection. Why in the world would you go into life without the guard and the protections? So you can cut your thumb off, hopefully, not. (laughs) It hurts. Screwing up hurts. But I guarantee you the lesson that I learned there is I will never use a mandolin without the guard, (laughs) right? If a tool comes with a guard, I'm going to use it. Man, if you have a a, a saw at home that comes with a guard and you took it off, put it back on. (laughs) Come on. Let's be safe. We make mistakes and God plans for that. He understands there's forgiveness in our mistakes. In fact, he plans for it so much that as he tells us to move from infancy to adulthood, there's a process. We understand that as parents that you go from here as infants and you go over here to maturity. This isn't an instant transition. It's a painful process, isn't it? Especially as parents of teenagers and probably young adults, watching them start to make their own decisions and struggle with what their faith looks like or what the world is bringing at them. That's a painful process. And the good news is that there's forgiveness and mercies of God that are waiting for them. And we have that too. So we're gonna mess up and that's okay. There's discipline though, All right, Sometimes God will discipline us. That if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So God offers us forgiveness in Christ but along with that comes discipline. Now, some people think, oh, discipline, that's terrible. Nobody likes being disciplined. My kids hate it when I take things away or I ground them or I tell them you can't do this, right? But discipline comes from a love, especially discipline out of love, which is what God gives us, is a good thing. Because it prevents us from being condemned along with the world. The rest of the world doesn't experience God's discipline because they're not of God. And so they are condemned. But we who are part of God's family, we get the discipline. And sometimes that discipline means that we learn our lessons and we move on and we're good. All right, God, I got that one. I'm not going to not use the card again. I'm going to read your scriptures. I'm going to do the things. Right? But sometimes the discipline, I just can't figure it out. I mean, how many of you ever receive God's discipline and you're like scratching your head like, God, I don't understand what you're trying to get me to do here. I don't understand the lesson I'm supposed to learn. Help me understand. James says, you know, if you don't, if you lack wisdom, pray for it. I constantly am praying, God, show me, give me some wisdom. Help me understand. And sometimes during that period, all that we have left is to endure. It is for discipline that we have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So we should crave God's discipline. It tells us, it reminds us that we're beloved sons and daughters of God, that we belong to his family. He's disciplining us so that we know we're part of his family and to teach us things. Here's my radical idea, is that we we give up the things of the flesh, our passions of the flesh. We put off our old self through the act of self-denial. We practice good disciplines, practice self-discipline so that we can put on the things of God. And we practice self-indulgence. And I say self-indulgence, but it's really, it's new self. We have a new self. And we practice new self-indulgence. We practice new self-indulgence by by going all in for the things of God. And we want to do that because why? There's a problem if we don't. There's a problem if we don't. In Romans 1, Starting in verse 26, Paul is describing a world without God. A godly, ungodly people. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's over here, right? The old self. Dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. Receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. This sounds just like culture today, does it not? Yeah. So if you think you missed the boat, hold on a second. We're not off the hook yet. Keeps going. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, we still have that problem, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, investor, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, f- faithless, heartless, ruthless. How many of you can honestly read that and say that wasn't me at some point? I mean, we look around the world today and we condemn the world and we think, oh my God, I can't believe our society is going this direction. I can't believe the things that are going on in the world. But when I look at what scripture says, this was us once. We were like this. This was was our world. And only by the mercies of God were we saved out of it. So then what are we to do? Well, we're to indulge now in the new things. Those of you that once walked, again, this is referring to us as Christians, we too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. We put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, all these things that we talked about. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's right, we, we are being renewed in knowledge. Folks, I, your pastor's telling me you gotta read your Bible. You wanna know what the instructions are for life? You wanna know instructions not so you don't get hurt? You gotta read your Bible. That's where all the instructions are. It tells you what you should and shouldn't do. It tells you why, in case you need to know that. I'm a, I'm a why person. You just tell me not to do something, I'm probably gonna scoff at you and just go do it anyway, right? But you tell me why not to do something, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, I cannot do that. I'm not a very obedient person without why. I need the why. If you're a person that needs the why, go to scripture. It's in there. And again, I'll reiterate this. We all make mistakes. We've all been there. We've all been godless people who've blasphemed against God. How many of you, when you were 16 to 22, made some really dumb mistake? I call them my dumb years. Any of you? No? I saw some hands, right? Maybe you found yourselves in the back of your parents' car or a friend's car with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Maybe you were in the woods or at a friend's house in a hay barn. Our older generation, they understood that one. How many of you stole a beer? How about skimming off the liquor bottles when your parents were gone? Uh, Stole a cigarette from your mom, dad, grandparents. How about shoplifting? Any of you stolen anything? I don't need hands. Just, Just asking. Right? When I was growing up, shoplifting was a thing. Nowadays, it's just, it's almost the norm. They don't even prosecute if you steal things. It's almost expected. But God, in his Ten Commandments, he tells us, don't steal. It's one of the, it's so important, it's in the Ten Commandments, don't steal. And yet, people have no problem with it. Now, when you were a teenager, in the dumb years, like I call them, right? Sometimes, there we may have gotten away with it. No consequences, no big deal. But... Some of you may have had some consequences, maybe some long-lasting consequences that you've had to deal with, but God forgave them, right? He's, he's, he's let you live a life free from bondage of slavery and sin, and you've been forgiven. So really, Christians, I'm talking to you right now. If you look around and you find someone who's been made a bad decision, can you honestly say you haven't made a bad decision? And can you really condemn that person? I mean, if God forgave them their dumb decision and my dumb decisions, can't you forgive them their dumb decisions too? Help them instead of condemning them? We have to sacrifice the things of this world. And we need to be new self indulgent. And God is all about others and about loving others and being indulgent and enduring with patience those who are weaker than ourselves. Jesus is for flesh self denial. We deny the things of the flesh. He's for self-discipline. We train ourselves for godliness, and he's for new self-indulgence. We're to indulge and love the things of God and spend our life pursuing and being happy to do so.